Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim, to introduce you to change makers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help, or not. We look at learning in traditional settings, schools and universities, but also outside of them, after school, at home, and of course, at work. In our second series, we're looking at how schools are coping with COVID-19, including what lessons we will apply to the hopeful aim of building back better. Topics we obsess on include nimble innovations, closing equity gaps, and ways to prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest today is Wendy Kopp, CEO and co-founder of Teach for All, a global network of over 50 independent organizations which try to cultivate leadership in students through their education. Before Teach for All, Wendy founded Teach for America in 1989 to get some of the country's top talent into classrooms rather than just management consulting and banking. While Teach for America was sometimes criticized for putting inexperienced teachers in some of the country's toughest classrooms, Teach for America is also credited with creating a pipeline of education leaders, people who witness education firsthand and then commit to improving it. She left Teach for America after 23 years and started Teach for All to help develop locally rooted social entrepreneurs. Wendy has been working to elevate education through leadership for a long time and challenges herself and her organization to think and rethink what education is for, the role of teaching, the impact of networks, and how to serve students. We talk about really cool innovations from around the world, the nature of leadership, what this moment means, and whether she thinks we'll actually do anything with it. You know, I think what we've seen during this pandemic is that when kids kept learning, it was always about teachers, local leaders, in some cases, parents and, and students and others exerting leadership. I mean, we, we need a lot of leadership at every level. It's just that I think the, the most important ingredient is actually in local communities all over the world. I love the richness of the examples she offers from teachers leading small group instruction in Uganda to teachers in Mexico supporting parents and child development via social media or taking the Indian curriculum and making it accessible on phones with very limited data. It's a really interesting conversation. Wendy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I want to start by reading some statistics that you just put in a piece published on Medium. First, a survey from UNESCO, UNICEF, and the World Bank showed that about half of students out of school, that's half of 1.5 billion kids, were unable to participate in remote learning. Even in high-income countries, learning opportunities have been severely reduced. According to one survey from Germany, children spent on average 3.6 hours a day on school-related activities, down from 7.4 hours in pre-pandemic times. And this one's awful. Before the pandemic, more than half of 10-year-olds in low- and middle-income countries could not read or were out of school. And the World Bank projects that this learning poverty rate could grow by 10% to 72 million kids at the end of this year. And then you go on to say you're optimistic. Why? I mean, I'm daunted, but I do think that there are essentially just new possibilities in this era that gives us the possibility of actually coming back stronger. I mean, as the statistics make clear, we weren't preparing this generation to thrive even before the pandemic. And for many, many, probably decades, there's been some agreement on the fact that we really need to reimagine education, you know, 
and, and make it far more equitable. And so my hope and belief is that now that we've stepped out of the box of traditional education, you know, take advantage of the moment to identify the new innovations and spread them. We are seeing many of the new innovations that are giving us reason for optimism, but I, I also do believe that ultimately this will be all about leadership and whether enough people will exert leadership towards this end, towards ensuring that we do identify the new innovations and spread them and actually do reimagine our education systems and and, and live into all of those possibilities. And, and of course, that's a big if, like it's up to us. So I think we can do it. And the question is simply, will we? As you said, there's a lot of people who have been calling for this for a long time, but are you seeing a change in appetite for this at scale in some of the countries that you operate in? You know, I think what we've seen during this pandemic is that when kids kept learning, it was always about teachers, local leaders, in some cases, parents and, and students and others exerting leadership. I mean, we, we need a lot of leadership at every level. It's just that I think the, the most important ingredient is actually in local communities all over the world. I think we have seen tremendous leadership on the part of teachers, I mean, all across our network and far beyond our network. And so part of the challenge I think that faces us all is just the question of how do we continue to invest in the development of, of those locally rooted leaders and how do we come behind them and support them to continue to innovate and, and to actually spread the innovation, spread the things that they're seeing are, are working. I've heard you say that you see a real shifting energy around parents. What is that and toward what and what do we do with it? First of all, I think the most successful teachers always have partnered effectively with parents. And of course, I mean, you know, there are kids at different ages and, and different relationships with parents make sense depending on kids' developmental levels. But really, I think what we've seen in this era is left no option. <laughs> Teachers resorted to deepening their relationships with parents and giving them a way to support their kids' education. And, and I think we need to see that continue. I mean, so it's not exactly a new innovation per se, but, you know, we've kind of been forced into good practice. <laughs> not, not to say that parents should all be teaching their kids all day long. It's just that I think we've supported them in a different way and in some ways that should continue. So, for example, you know, I think about the work that Enseñapur Mexico has been doing to take some of the latest research on child development and actually build it in. I mean, they were doing this pre-pandemic, but during the pandemic, they resorted to social media and they started posting, you know, guidance for parents, activities you can do with your kids that are all rooted in the latest research. They had, you know, 30,000 views in a day on some of these postings on Instagram and, and Facebook and whatnot. And, and that's just one new possibility. Like you saw the appetite for that on the part of parents. And it's just that I think many times we haven't given them the information and the opportunity to engage. I think about this example in, in the US, Springboard Collaborative, which has been working for many years to essentially support partnerships between schools and teachers and parents to support early literacy development. And their results are just completely definitive. I mean, where you essentially support parents to know how to support their kids in learning to read, the results are much stronger. But in this era, 
just the appetite on the part of school districts to work with them went through the roof. I mean, they're working with, I forget how many times more parents and, and teachers now, and they're seeing something like six times the literacy development as the alternative during this COVID era. So, you know, hopefully we'll never lose that. I think there's a perception that to have learned in this time, you needed to have a device or connectivity because we focused very much on the digital divide, which is important. But I've heard you say that that's not necessarily the case. So tell me what you've seen in terms of learning innovations. I guess I've seen both. I mean, I, I want to get to the technology piece because I think it's another place where we've had a huge and sweeping mindset shift that opens up a lot of new possibilities. But you know, I, I think about Uganda, where the Teach for Uganda teachers are, are working in rural villages with no electricity. And, you know, once schools were shut down, they had to figure out, well, how are we going to keep kids learning? And, and they basically just created a schedule. So the kids who used to be in, you know, maybe 70 student classrooms are now meeting in groups of 10 on a schedule under trees and, and the teachers in, in a physically distanced and safe way are going from community to community. And they've kept 8,000 kids learning across 33 school communities over these months. And what they're saying is that actually, you know, they're seeing their kids grow in their reading levels actually, and in their self-confidence and in their engagement. So they're trying to think about like, how do we keep this going? How do we partner with schools and families and figure out how to keep, how to create much smaller group instruction? Again, not a new innovation, it's differently. This notion of leveraging the available technology to, to make learning more accessible and easier. I, I've been on multiple calls even this week with our network's teachers and, and alumni, and just one universal is they're just saying, you know, this got us over our inertia. You know, we're just we're trying everything and we're realizing that it really does work. And there are some really dramatic examples that show us the possibility. Like I think about these Teach First alums in, in the UK, um, about 60 of them who came together to essentially put the British curriculum online in the form of 10,000 high quality lessons. They've built a virtual schoolhouse called Oak National Academy. And you know, over 100 million lessons have been viewed by more than 5 million kids over these last months of lockdown and hybrid and all. And they are thinking, we'll never lose this. I mean, it's such a resource for students, for parents, for teachers. And, and we've seen different forms of that. Like I go to the other extreme of, you know, Zimbabwe, where there's not a lot of broadband and laptops, but where the main, the available technology is MP3 players. And they've done the same thing on those MP3 players, like taking the curriculum and created, you know, 20 minute snappy lessons. And they're thinking actually, there's so much absenteeism in the places where they're teaching due to rains, due to migrant seasons, due to many factors. And they're thinking, actually, this is going to make learning accessible all, all the time. And, and there's everything in between. I mean, in India, they've created a very similar piece, like basically taking the Indian curriculum and made it accessible on phones with very limited data. So we're seeing the possibilities and, and we're also seeing, I mean, for, for a long time, I think many, many of us who have been working to foster, you know, kind of student development towards holistic outcomes. So academic skills and non-academic skills, like fostering student agency, students ownership for their own learning and whatnot, have been trying to figure out how to change the role of the teacher from provider of all knowledge to facilitator of instruction. You know, how do we put students in the driver's seat to own their education? And I think technology 
I mean, we, we knew this intellectually before, but we're now just seeing examples of it all over the world where actually the technology is what makes that easier and almost inevitable, which is also a new possibility, I think. You're quite vocal that one of the many opportunities we face here is to get out of this, as you say, educational box we've been in for 150 years and not revert to a narrow academic focus. So what do you want to move toward and what's the role of agency in then? Well, what's interesting is I think in this era, any teacher, parent or otherwise has realized that the kids who kept learning were the kids who were kind of owning their education. And I think that's another new possibility, by the way, because where they weren't owning it, teachers resorted to trying to figure out how do we make the shift? Like, how do we enable that to happen? And I think that's so important. I mean, a few years ago across the Teach for All network, we we really stepped back together. This was like five years ago and asked ourselves, you know, we had previously been oriented around this vision of ensuring all children have access to an excellent education, but there were so many questions across our network around what do we mean by that? What is an excellent education and to what end? And so we decided to work together to develop a 25-year vision. And we started by thinking, where will the world be in 25 years? You know, and that led us to contemplate how, how many challenges we all face, you know, how much the environment is degrading, the economy is changing, and, and so forth. And one of the what just struck us was if today's students are not developing as leaders we won't meet any of our aspirations. And so that became our vision, enabling all children to have the education, support, and opportunity to shape a better future for themselves and for all of us. And it was a real reorientation, actually. Like, we had to think about what does that mean? And it does mean that we need students to grow in their sense of well-being so that they are owning their path and exerting their influence on society, you know, and they need to grow in their awareness of themselves and of the systems around us so that they can kind of work for change from a place of strength. They do need to grow in their mastery of vital skills and knowledge, including the ability to think critically and all, you know, and I, I think it's hard to define that list at any global level. Like, like what we really think we need is for every community to come together and say, for us, given our local context and local challenges and aspirations and history and, and culture, you know, what will that look like? You know, if our students are developing as leaders who can shape a better future for themselves and all of us in this community, what does that mean for the outcomes we need to work towards? And it will be a holistic set of outcomes. When you do that, what happens when the community picks goals that I don't want to say are in contrast to or in opposition to maybe what your training or your experience has led you to, but have there been instances where it just leads in a different direction? And of course, you're going to enable that. I'm not saying you're going to get in the way and say, no, we're right, you're wrong. But I also wonder, is there conflict there? We always think in terms of the importance of being both locally rooted and globally informed. And actually, I mean, all across the world, there are local leaders leading these processes to co-create visions for student success that are both locally rooted and globally informed. And I have never found a community where there wasn't a tremendous amount of love for the kids in, in the community. And I think, you know, you find your way to the answers that 
that actually will serve kids best and are very in sync with with local values and culture as well. I mean, I have heard so many examples of this. Like I think about some of our fellows in Pakistan who have been working in communities that are broadly perceived to be incredibly patriarchal. And yet they've ended up enlisting the fathers and supporting their girls to take computer science classes and go off to university, even even if that wasn't what they first saw when they first engaged in those communities. And I guess what I, I just keep coming back to, you know, it does take local leaders who believe in the potential of girls and have had a lot of exposure and, and have a real sense of possibility for what kids have the potential to do, who understand the strengths and assets in communities and root their work with the people in those communities. I want to go back to something you said about agency, which is that those students who had agency were able to thrive more in this environment. And that intuitively strikes me as true. But I wonder, is there evidence of that? Actually, I just found a study or, you know, the Incendiapur Mexico team has actually long put at the center of their work an effort to build student social emotional skills. And they have research that shows the efficacy of their approach. I mean, students growing in their, you know, growth mindset and self-management ability and essentially agency um, and such. And they now have a study that looks at the impact of that work during this pandemic. And the study shows that those efforts to strengthen social emotional skills resulted in stronger student mental health and ability to continue learning during this era. I must say the biggest theme, and again, I've been talking with these various network teachers and whatnot, their biggest thought about the new possibilities is everything to do with social emotional skills. I mean, they said, you know, we have realized how important it is to prioritize students, you know, mental health and well-being and social emotional skills. We integrate it into everything all day, every day. And when we go back, we need to continue to do that. And it will make a world of difference. So I think that is a very real new possibility as well. So I think we'll get much further on the learning outcomes if we actually are helping students approach, you know, learning from a place of strength and ownership. And that gets to the COVID learning loss question. How do you best address that? What are you hearing from your network and sort of what do you hope the emphasis is on? Because there's sort of two camps of thought here. There's one, let's figure out where kids are so we can help them and support them. And then there's another one which says, let's make sure these kids are okay. And then like, we'll get to the academic stuff later. Which would you prioritize? I think this is a case where we have to hold both truths, you know, together. I think the learning loss fears are very real. I mean, it's very centering to talk with teachers to understand that. I don't think we can just ignore that. I mean, I wouldn't ignore it for my own kid. And therefore, you know, I don't think as a society we should ignore that. But I actually think what we've seen is that focusing on students' well-being is a path to growing their learning. So it really doesn't have to be an either or. And the thing that's making me most hopeful right now is that even this morning, I had the chance to listen to a student from Argentina who was talking about just how excited she is to come back to school and be part of the school community. And that's another theme that I've heard from all these teachers is just how 
much more engaged the students are in general in wanting to be back at school, but in, in some cases really specifically like in learning technology, in leveraging technology to advance their own learning. So I think we need to have an assets-based frame. There are new strengths that our students have, like they are many of them better able to manage themselves. They have had a lot of time to think about their purpose and what they want to prioritize. We're seeing lots of evidence of, of energy for school. And so hopefully we can leverage all of that. This is so complex and I, I don't want to minimize the challenges of this era and the fact that, I mean, another reality is we've just lost a lot of kids, like, meaning they may never come back to school, like they've gone to work, they've been married early. You know, I'm also hearing that and it can all be very overwhelming until you, you really realize that actually enough leadership can solve all these problems. So that's what brings me back to, to the question of local leadership and whether, we will do what is necessary to foster the local leadership to tackle the issues in their full complexity because enough leadership can solve any challenge. I mean, that's probably the most fundamental lesson of my last 30 years in this work. So I think we should be thinking deeply as a society and as countries and as communities about that. How do we unleash the leadership of our existing educators and, and of the students themselves, actually? I mean, we've seen incredible examples of student initiative during these, this era. How do we galvanize the rising generation, the recent graduates, the young professionals to say, you know what, there's nothing more important than ensuring that this generation thrives. So let's channel our energy into pioneering the educational innovations and meeting the needs of, of today's students and moving them ahead. So uh, to me, that should be our most central question. You have such experience in this, taking young people, training them and putting them in tough situations, able to solve problems. What advice can you offer in this moment to how we close some of those gaps, which may, by the way, be academic. And I hear you saying that we need to do more than that. But if we were answering that question right here, what's your advice? I think it's really important to make space before we dive straight into that for the conversation about purpose, like what we're working towards. I think that's the biggest opportunity of the moment. Like we have stepped out of the box and this box was not serving us. Our school system was created, you know, decades and decades ago when the world was different, our aspirations were different, our, our students were different and we've long needed to rethink it. And this is our chance. And I think if we don't do that, we will be missing a real opportunity. And even thinking in this country, in the U.S., we're at such a juncture in our history. And it just feels like such a critical moment where, you know, there's such deep polarization, such ongoing systemic inequities. It, it just seems like the perfect moment to step back and ask ourselves within communities, you know, what do we want to have be true for our young people? And, and what are the implications for what we're working towards? And, and then we can go about thinking through, okay, so how should we approach the school day? I'm not sure that putting all of our kids in classes all summer is going to be the path. I can't imagine doing that to my own kids. So it makes me very skeptical that that's the answer for other people's kids. I can hear you sort of making sure we focus on this burst of student agency, this teacher creativity and their own agency, you know, kind of owning it, their leadership. How do we keep that when we get back in the classroom? Because it feels like there will be maybe a very human desire to just revert. That's probably the biggest thing we're talking about and thinking about, because I, I think all things will take us back to the status quo. Like that's where things will just flow unless 
we resolve otherwise. Again, I mean, I hate to be such a broken record, but this will all be about leadership. It's going to be a question of in which communities do students, parents, educators, and others decide we're not going to go back to the way it was and, you know, really come together to rethink what is it that we're working towards and how are we going to get there? I try every minute of every day right now to have that mindset. Like, what are the new possibilities we're seeing and how are we going to leverage them so that we're on a different trajectory than we were on coming into this pandemic? Do you have examples of communities that you feel will take that mantle of we're not going to go back? You know, I think about our colleagues across Teach for India who are just thinking how to institutionalize blended learning. We can hugely accelerate progress in this way, and we've seen evidence of that. And and there are many challenges because, you know, they really are still hard at work trying to figure out how to ensure equitable access to connectivity and devices. But they are just embracing this is the future, and we're going to make sure that we get on a path to leveraging the incredible possibilities of blended learning. I mean, I'm just seeing many, many examples of this around the world. There's a classroom of Roma kids in in Romania who typically in the school haven't gone past eighth grade, who are engaging with like engineers at Google about their future and are completely (laughs) driven to advance their education and be part of the technology revolution. I mean, think about new possibilities, you know, and I think about these tutoring programs that are popping up now all over the world where where governments are investing in, you know, thousands of tutors to to be able to provide one-on-one instruction to kids who have fallen behind. And I think, I mean, we've all seen the power of, of, tutoring and one-on-one instruction for, for catching kids up and moving them ahead. So I think that's a hugely promising sign as well. Does like the idea of lifelong learning gain steam? Will lifelong learning really become a thing? Will this idea of being like active, constant, everywhere learners take off from this moment? It's interesting because I feel that I'm, you know, and you are, I'm sure too, kind of surrounded by colleagues who actually are learning every day. And so it leads me to just go back to thinking about the foundations of that. And I, I think if if our young people come out of this era with a much greater sense of agency and sense that they are owning their own learning journey and that they can access learning possibilities anywhere, not they don't have to be sitting in classes to do it. I think that's the biggest foundation for like really a a much more pervasive shift in mindset. And I do feel like we're seeing the possibility for that. Wonderful. Thank you, Wendy. Okay. Three super quick questions. What's your favorite book about learning? I would have to say Mindset by Carol Dweck. I, I just think that, and maybe it speaks back to what we've been discussing about the importance of kids understanding that they can own their own learning, that smart is not something you're born, it's something you become, that the brain is a muscle. I think that 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 book and her ideas have probably done as much to, you know, inform our network as as anything, actually. And your favorite book, Not About Learning? This is hard. I'm going to give you my one of my most recents, which is Human Mind by Rutger Bregman. And okay, final one. What are you binge watching? This is a new possibility created by COVID because I never binge watched anything, like not anything. I just finished on Sunday night, the last episode of The Crown. I watched it religiously. I just, I just loved every minute of it. And now I don't know what I'm gonna do. Thank you so much for joining us, Wendy. Thank you so much. 
It's really hard to know where to fall on the outlook scale. The devastation of this moment is tremendous. As Wendy said, we just lost a lot of kids who will never come back to school. Students who were married early or sent to work. But it's hard to not also feel that the magnitude of all the pain and suffering of the past year might actually be the catalyst for change that was so desperately needed. What we were doing before wasn't working, and so we have to do better now. Wendy's optimism that we can do this comes from two places. One, she's seen a lot of creativity, innovation, and energy unleashed in the past year, from Mexico to Uganda to Pakistan and India. And some of what we need to do is get out of the way. As she said, how do we unleash the leadership of our existing educators and of the students themselves? And at a higher level, how do we mobilize policymakers to supercharge this moment from the local to the global? I've known Wendy for a while, so it didn't surprise me that her faith in this is rooted in leadership. The question, she writes, is not whether it is possible for this generation to thrive, but whether enough people will exert the leadership necessary to make the most of these possibilities and whether we will prioritize supporting them to innovate and spread their new approaches. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.